Father, may all our days bring glory to your name, we pray. Father, be present with us in this, the Sunday morning worship of the one God of heaven and earth. We ask you to be with us in a powerful and palpable way this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 this morning will begin with the first seven verses. Paul is still on the subject of election, but he's still on the subject of election pertaining to the Jews and to the Jewish nation. One of the most controversial areas of theology um, in the church today, it seems to me, is what about Israel? And so Paul, in his own sometimes cryptic way, it seems, uh, tries to unlock some of the mysteries of this for us. And so we're going to read from Romans chapter 11 this morning, where the apostle writes, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, let us approach this passage fearfully and thoughtfully, O oh Lord. Amen. All right, so we have the Apostle, as we've seen lately in the last two chapters, he's lamenting what seems to be the sad defection of his own countrymen, the Jews. When he said, I say, has God cast away his people, he's talking about the Jews. And it's interesting as you go through this, you have to sort of discern through the context which group of people he's talking about where. Because he may say Israel and mean the remnant. He may say Israel and mean the nation. He could even say Israel and mean the church, as he's done in uh, some past verses 
from other chapters, particularly chapter 9. And we're going to talk about some of that this morning. But just a little history, even before we get into this, just so we're aware, it's never as dire as it might seem. And he's, and he's, he's using the example of Elijah, which we've used a time or two throughout the series, um, as looking at the world with our own finite vision and seeing things in a way that perhaps they are not in reality. Elijah looked upon the earth. All he saw was they're tearing down altars. They're worshiping other gods. And he actually interceded against his own people. And God had to correct him and show him that he's the one that's in charge. It is never about works. It's always about God's choice. The purpose of God according to election. And so in the time of Christ... You may remember those who came to the Lord were primarily of the Jewish nation. And there were few. And 50 days after the crucifixion, 50 days after the Passover, when the Feast of Pentecost came about, as you know very famously from Acts chapter 2, that 120 disciples were in the upper room and they were baptized with the Spirit of God who descended upon them. They came down and a great revival broke out among the Jews. Jews from every nation throughout the world were there. Thousands were brought to Christ in a single day. Thousands more the next day. Thousands more the next week. Um, so many that they had to begin the first um, organization of the church. They had to appoint deacons. Deacons are very essential to the organizational ministry of the church, to the outreach ministry of the church. So they appointed deacons. They appointed uh, elders. And the church was primarily at that time in Jerusalem, a Jewish church. And we know by tradition that James, the Lord's brother, became the chief elder in that city. And they went to that city as the main church where they, would, where they would take theological and practical advice from. You may remember the great Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, I believe. And so then the Jews were scattered throughout the land. So if, if Jesus was crucified in, let's say, roughly 30 A.D., and Pentecost also happened in that year, then thousands of the Jewish people in their own homelands during their own feast days were brought to Christ. And shortly after that, one more Israelite was brought to Christ, Paul the Apostle. Saul of Tarsus, he was known as at the time. And he came to Christ. And then as we know, if we're careful in our reading, that Paul absconded for a while by himself to study the word of God among the elite scholars of the time. By the time Paul wrote this letter, several decades had passed, and certainly it seemed that Christianity was a Gentile religion almost exclusively, and was in all the Gentile cities, with the exception, perhaps, of just Jerusalem. And so by the time Paul wrote this letter... In the late 50s, we should say, he's writing to Rome after a time when Claudius Caesar, who I'll mention in the notes, um, basically kicked all the Jews out of Rome. 
There weren't any Jews there. They had to leave. And what Paul wants to get across is that God hadn't turned away from the Jews, but there was this time of respite where God had, as, he, as we read here, according to the um, prophecy of Isaiah, given them a spirit of stupor. Now, this is the, the danger of going into a, a chapter like this where it's so controversial, if, if, if you haven't been here for the series of the preceding chapters, because it brings us into here. Um, the purpose of God according to election might stand, and there's no other way to come into the faith but by faith in Christ. There's no other way to be saved but that. You don't come in because of your Jewishness. That's not going to change. And so if we have all of that doctrine understood up until this point, I think the passage is less troublesome in our understanding. Another thing I've noticed as I read, and I'm going to quote from several commentators this morning, but as I read, Matthew Henry was in some ways the most interesting, and that's because All the others do what I do. They take a passage of scripture and they try to work it through. And next week, take a next passage, maybe a handful of verses. But that the chapter 11 of Romans doesn't really lend itself to that so well. You really have to look at the whole chapter as your text. And that's what Matthew Henry did. And of course, by that time, it was very late in my sermon prep, so I... Um, I thought I would mention it to you just to know some of the answers that you'll seek are later on in the chapter, but I will bring that out um, in the message this morning. But as we've seen, Paul is lamenting the situation. The same way, in some ways, the same way as Elijah did, only he's learning from Elijah's mistake. Things are not always as they seem. Friends, things are not always as bad as they seem. And I think we have a great application in that this morning. So the gospel was the gift of God to men, but first, as with every gift of God, it was offered to Israel. Now, there's no doubt that Israel is a special nation. It's not like the other nations, is it? It's a special nation. They were God's own chosen people. And he cloistered them away For 40 years, he took them out of Egypt with great spectacle, I think you could say. And for 40 years in the desert, refined them, and if if we're careful with our understanding, punished and chastised them as well. But there's no doubt that they're a special nation, special to God's heart. Israel was special in its origins, the way they came about. It was special in its government, given them directly by God. It was special in its destiny, prophesied from the beginning, and it's undoubtedly special in God's affection. To no other nation did he say what the prophet Amos said, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known above all the families of the earth. And I want you to know that when the Bible says known, it doesn't mean know about. Known means to love. To know scripturally is to love. God knows about all the nations. We wouldn't say God only knows about Israel. He doesn't know about anything else. But he said, you only have I known. Once again, we have to consider the biblical emphasis of the word know. 
To know someone in the biblical sense has with it a sense of intimacy. It says less of knowing and more of loving. You follow? It elicits even friends in some contexts a carnal intimacy, a sexual love and desire as with the statement from Genesis 4.1 which said Adam knew his wife. You see. It didn't mean he read her biography. It didn't mean he went up on her Facebook page. He knew her in this intimate bonding between two people. Two parties, we should say. And the same is true with the word foreknew. It's always a good habit to keep in mind the intensity of that particular word, especially when this apostle uses it in the book of Rome, of Romans rather, and elsewhere. From Romans 8 he wrote, For whom he foreknew, in other words, he loved beforehand, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Election, friends, is one of the great doctrines. It's one of the great doctrines of the book of Romans. It's one of the great doctrines of the book of the chapter 11 of Romans. And it's also one of the great mysteries that still remains to us shrouded in some mystery. To elect is simply to choose. Israel is called the chosen people. That's their nickname. We all say that. Paul's chief instrument, or rather, Paul is God's chief instrument in revealing that truth, the great mystery of election, of predestination, of foreordinations, concepts that boggle the mind, but they're stated just blatantly and clearly in the scriptures as to be taken for granted. It's unthinkable for the Christian to ever assume that anything could take God by surprise. He knows the end from the beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega, right? So things are not only foreseen by God, but they're foreordained by God. And that's a good background for us to understand as we get into chapter 11. We'll never... Or rather, we should take care never to believe that God is influenced by events or personalities outside himself. You may recall a verse from scriptures that said he is no respecter of persons. Paul wrote about this very thing to the Ephesians when he said, In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. When God looks for advice, he asks himself. When he goes to swear by something, he swears by himself. Abraham's, um, or the story of Abraham told us. He had no one higher to swear by, so he swore by himself. And so the mystery of God's purpose is always and forever bound up with our destiny. Recall also the great verse from Romans 8, which says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are, are the called according to his purpose. So we know that election is real. We know that predestination is biblically founded. 
strongly and concretely over and over again, particularly in the book of Romans. But what we don't know is the inner workings of it. We may know that God does the choosing, and certainly we know that God does the orchestrating and the organizing of everything in existence, but we may never really know why or why he does things the way he does them. And with regard to the inner machinery or the logic or the manner with which the Lord brings all things to pass, we may never truly know the answers. I mean, maybe we will in eternity somewhere. I don't know. He, we may never be apprised of how a sovereign deity could choose one and not another. As he said in Romans 9.15. Or to love one and not another, as he said in Romans 9.13. So remember that our understanding of God's ultimate purposes for everything, not the least of which his own special people, is bound up in the phrase also from Romans 9, which says that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Sometimes God does these things and brings stupor and blindness upon a nation to show that it's all of him. It's all according to his purpose. He's ever, ever mindful of his people. He doesn't forget us. He doesn't forget his people of old, the Jews, and he doesn't forget those of us who came in in due time among the Gentiles. He's ever mindful of his promises to his people. And I may have to risk some disagreement with some of the greater minds in this regard that the purposes of God to the nation of Israel were always contingent and always conditional. As a nation, I mean. But the promises made to the special chosen number among his people, the so-called remnant, or the elect, those promises are unconditional and will forever be undisturbed by the unfaithfulness of mere men. And I'll give some examples from Deuteronomy 28. God said this through Moses. It shall come to pass, he says to his people, if you diligently obey, whenever you see a a, a phrase like that, if, it's conditional. If you diligently obey the voice of God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. From the same chapter, it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then he begins to list them, and they go on and on. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. You can't run away from the curse as the nation of Israel disobeying God. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land. And it goes on and on in a very fearful way. But I'd make this distinction. 
I believe that this is the distinction that Paul is urging us to see in this chapter, and that is that there is a distinct difference between the nation of Israel and the elect remnant within the nation. For the Lord has alluded to this also in the great chapter 9 of this epistle where he emphatically states, It is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Where he gave us the hint to this very distinction. And then as he signed off in the um, epistle to the Galatians, where he wrote, As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Strange phrasing. So let me say that this chapter is about the Jews from beginning to end. It's about the mass rejection of the gospel among them in Paul's time. It's about the fact that many in that time saw Christianity as a movement that was denied to Jews. It would have seemed like that perhaps in Rome, perhaps in Ephesus and other places. It's about the great revivals among the Gentiles of Paul's time as they came en masse into the churches of God and in Rome in particular. Biggest city, we may assume, it's the biggest church. We may recall that when Paul met his two famous friends, you remember Aquila and Priscilla, he met them in Corinth. Well, they had come from Rome. Well, why did they come from Rome? Because we read in Acts 18, Aquila had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius has commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. He kicked them out. What's interesting, Claudius ruled for 13 years from 41 to 54. And after him came um, Nero. Just checking with my, my officer over here, Dr. Roach. So he... He ruled roughly 13 years. Um, As usual, imperial edicts usually dissolved with the death of the emperor. And so the Jews began migrating back after that. But of course, that would have taken some time. And this letter was written shortly after AD 54, probably 55 or 56, the scholars tell us. So just as an example, Aquila and Priscilla were, had to leave Rome, and they met Paul in Corinth. So there's a definite upside to being known that is loved by God. There's a distinct privilege to having, to having it said by a great prophet that you only have I known of all the families of the earth. But I'll quote one great prophet this morning, Spider-Man's uncle. Everybody remember what Spider-Man's uncle told him? With great power comes great responsibility. Remember that? Don't forget. With great power comes great responsibility. So Amos makes the same addendum. He said, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Isn't that interesting? You're my people, therefore I'll punish you. But it's not so strange a relationship when you think about it. I had three boys who needed punishment from time to time. Um, Less so than I like to let on sometimes. But I didn't go around 
discipline everybody else's kids. I just discipline my own. Well, that's what the Lord does. So there's a definite upside to being loved by God. And, and then there's the difficult side, the responsibility side, the discipline side, the chastisement side. So as I've noted, the inner workings of God's will were, with regard to his blessed elect are not disclosed to us in full. Suffice it to say that God is insistent that we recognize divine prerogative with regard to how he handles his creation. And so his intimate love is always attended by his most intimate, fatherly chastisements. And so we read from the book of Hebrews. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. A father chastens his son. God chastens his people. To be loved by your father is to lovingly receive his authority. To be conformed to his requirements is to lovingly receive his chastisements. Never forget that chastisement is refinement, especially to the Christian. And so the writer goes on, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. It wouldn't be chastening if it was joyful, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We spoke from Ephesians on Thursday evening about the responsibility of the beloved of God to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. That's what God does. We gave testimony of the times in our lives when this was a difficult pairing of virtues. Truth and love don't always want to go together. Sometimes you want to give someone a very truthful piece of your mind and love has nothing to do with it. By the way, I suggest you don't do that. I've learned from experience telling people off doesn't feel as good as you think it's going to feel. Forget about it. Take another course. Speak the truth in love is a difficult pairing of virtues. It's not always easy. Love without truth is an anemic love, right? That's like giving your children just anything they want, let them do anything they want. Your neighbors would all be saying, I don't believe how permissive they are with those children. Don't they love them? And truth apart from love is really just self-righteousness or pedantry. You know what pedantry is? Being pedantic. A pedantic person um, says truthful things to show you how smart he is. He doesn't care about you learning them at all. And that's truth apart from love. When they're both together, the person that gives you truth is trying to impart the truth lovingly so that you'll incorporate that truth as your own truth. And so Paul, as he confronts his own countrymen with a disturbing truth about their God turning his affections upon members of other nations, he does so with the hard edge of piercing truth, but with the soft touch of fatherly affection. And so he assures them with a certain and comforting and immediate consolation. Has God cast away his people, the apostle says? Certainly not. 
So he gives us the answer. He doesn't leave us in suspense here. And it's characteristic of Paul. He doesn't usually offer a premise or make a doctrinal conclusion apart from biblical or experiential truth, and he does both here. For so he offers his first line of proof that God has not turned away from his covenant people. And he does so before he leaves the first verse. He says, For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm exhibit A. I'm in the faith. God has not turned away or cast away his people. He goes on to immediately assure them by saying, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And so as he offers this assurance, he also offers personal experience. I'm a Jew, he says. In fact, he says, I'm as Jewish as a Jew can be. And so he gives his pedigree, which he likes to do. He did it with the Philippians as well. Seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. But as is also characteristic of Paul, he states the obvious with clarity, with emphasis. But he leads us now to new doctrinal ground. He's going to break some new ground. And when I say new, please remember the great maximum of Solomon that there's really nothing new under the sun, right? But he's realizing that something revealed that was not known, though it is not new, is new to us. He knows they don't know this truth. And so he goes on to show that God has always preserved his people, even in the time of Elijah, when the whole nation seemingly went after pagan gods. And you go back and read that from 1 Kings chapter 18, and you'll see that Elijah did what any of us would have done. He observed what any of us would have observed from the top down. The nation was quite corrupt. The second half of that verse, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, and so the apostle uses Elijah's experience, his false conclusion, that God had rejected his people to clarify just who are the people of God. From Elijah's finite human point of view, it seemed that the whole nation had become apostate. Verse 3, he says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. He had a vendetta out on his life from the sorceress queen Jezebel. It was not an unreasonable conclusion at all. Some of us have made that conclusion about our nation. It seems to me we live in a Romans 1 world. As I said, God gave them up to a depraved mind. Just, I just want you to know, I do believe that. I do observe that. This chastens me a little bit, and I, I say maybe God's doing all these things I don't know of. But just remember, that chastening is always temporary. The chastening that God puts upon a nation is always temporary, and that's part of the message of what he's given in Romans 11. So to Elijah, it seemed the whole nation had become apostate. It was not an unreasonable conclusion. Ahab and Jezebel were the king and queen. They had 850 prophets working for them. 
400 worshiping altars of Baal and 450 the altars of the Asherah goddesses. And you remember what happened at Mount Carmel? And Elijah had all the prophets killed. And then the vendetta was put out on his life and he ran for his life. And he ran for many days. And it seemed that God had forsaken his people. And it seemed like he forsook them because they forsook him. But the Lord showed the prophet Ezra. And the apostle used the episode to make certain that he and we do not make the same error. And so before we say with despair, you know, it says, it says that um, Elijah came out of his cave <laughs> and he sat under a, a broom tree. I don't really know what a broom tree is. In your King James, it says his juniper tree. I like that better, a juniper tree. Friends, don't sit under your juniper tree and tell God that the world's gone to hell because God, God may rebuke you the way he did his prophet, albeit a loving rebuke, I should say. But when it seems that all is lost, when it seems that we're alone and forsaken, a voice crying in the wilderness, when it seems that the leaders of a nation have forsaken the God of their fathers and gone after other gods, and that pagan immorality is rampant in their homes and in the streets of the cities, and even the accoutrements of religion have become corrupted when priests harm children and ministers preach another gospel, that all is still not lost. <coughs> Excuse me. It may seem to us at times that we're an island in the stream of corruption and unfaithfulness, but God is at work. That's part of the lesson of chapter 11. God is yet faithful. He's saving and reserving and accomplishing his own ends. Even in the midst of all the turmoil, God is doing those things. Elijah was heartened by what God revealed to him that he was not alone and that God had reserved for him a remnant. I, I always wondered, where are they? <laughs> where are these 7,000 to stand with Elijah? But God had them hidden away. Just as Elijah had come to terms that the nation of Israel was not his own personal possession, that the church of our time does not belong to us, The church is God's possession, just as Israel was. And he'll do with it as he, as he wills. Just as Ahab and Jezebel represent the national interests of their nation and the prophets of Baal practiced their rampant idolatry, God was yet in possession of his people and mindful of a much more far-reaching purpose than even the prophet could see. So know this as a, an application. I am an ardent patriot of our country. I've always loved my country. But I would rather be part of the remnant than part of the regime. I'll take kingdom over country any day. Give me a heavenly theocracy over an earthly democracy. 
I'll take the tree of life over the tree of liberty. I'll take communion over union, election over elections, and the glory of God over the glory of man. So we love our country, and it hurts us to see it in disarray, but it doesn't really belong to us. It belongs to him. That's part of the lesson of God's dealing with Israel. And Elijah learned it, and Paul learned it, and now we're learning it. Verse 5, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So we've done our work of parsing the teaching of Paul with regard to God's hand upon the nation of Israel. The apostle pleads that we'll not fall into the same era, error as Elijah. That we'll not judge the nature of things by our naked human sight. But by the word of God and the examples of history that he gives us. The word of God is such a treasure, particularly the Old Testament, where we have all of these examples to refer to. Paul uses this one. I'm going to use several others. As I've already done Uh, in the teaching with the people of Israel from Deuteronomy. The question, of course, arises from this passage, is God finished with the nation of Israel? That's the big controversial question of our time, isn't it? Is God finished with the nation? Now, we know for certain that God's not finished with the people of Israel, the Jews. J. Vernon McGee, in his time, noted in his commentaries on this passage that all of the... Of all the people of the earth, the Israeli people were being saved at a much higher ratio than the rest of the world. That was news to me. I did not know that. I'll take his word for it. But what about national Israel, the actual nation? We spoke of chastisement for for whom the Lord loves he chastens, and certainly we can see his fearful chastisement of that nation throughout the written word. From the time of the Assyrian captivity through the Babylonian exile. Friends, captivity after the time of David and Solomon. After the short couple of centuries of the divided kingdom. Captivity transferred, captivity of God's people transferred from one conquering nation to another. From Babylon to Persia, from Persia to Greece, from Greece to Rome in the time of Christ, to A.D. 70 when the destruction of the temple and the whole sacrificial system of Israel was destroyed. We may see these as national chastisements. But the doctrine of the remnant is ever there to provide hope for the ancient people of God. And I would not venture to conclude from the present chapter that God is finished with the remnant of Israel, nor with the nation of Israel. I don't want to fall into the same mistake of presuming I know the future when it has not been told to me. For the moment, I'll let others come to their own informed conclusions. But I would point you to a statement of Paul later on in the chapter, where he writes these words. You see, Matthew Henry really was right. We really need the whole chapter as our text. And so I'm going to go toward the end of the chapter where Paul writes this. And they also, 
if they do not continue in unbelief, he's talking about the Israelites, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. He goes on to say, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. As I said, a temporary blindness. And so all Israel will be saved. That is quite a statement. I do want you to know, though, don't be taken in by a perverse sense of the literal. We already know that that doesn't mean every Jew in Israel. We already know that because of chapter 9. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, right? The covenant went to Isaac and not to Ishmael, right? We already know that doesn't mean every person of the nation. But he is speaking of Israel being saved as a nation. As it is written, he said, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he'll turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Just so I don't conclude things hastily, I want to give you some of the commentary on those verses from some of the great commentators, the ones that I often turn to and respect very much, certainly John Calvin, where he says on these verses, when the Gentiles shall come in, the Jews also shall return from their defection to the obedience of faith. That's his opinion. Matthew Henry that though the Jews were cast off at present, yet in God's due time they should be taken into his church again. Interesting. Now you know what's also interesting about those two (coughs) commentators is they lived centuries before national Israel was reconstituted in 1948 by the League of Nations. Something that we know, something that the next two commentators already know. You see what I mean? Nobody expected that to happen, I can tell you. That would certainly have surprised people like Calvin and Henry from the 16th and 17th centuries. J. Vernon McGee writes this, What is the reason that the nation Israel will be restored? Well, that's locked in the riches of the wisdom of God. But he's assuming it is a fact. Lloyd-Jones says, God does not take this special interest in the Jews, or God does take this special interest in the Jews in the way that we have been indicating, namely, that they are going to be brought back as a people into the church through belief and faith in Christ. MacArthur says Israel will at last see Jesus as her Messiah and will repent of her unbelief and lament her rejection of him. That's quite a testimony of these great scholars. But they're just working off Romans chapter 11 and other other such passages. 
Verse 6 says, And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer by grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. That's a long way of saying that grace and works are mutually exclusive. It's either one or the other. It can't be both. The ultimate lesson of the passage is that the purposes of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. It's either by grace or it's by works. And God says, if you're coming into my kingdom, it's going to be by my grace and my choice. Works produce the glory of man. A fragile, fading glory at best. Grace is the work of God. And only by his grace may we know his eternal glory. Whatever the conclusion regarding Israel, we can be certain of one thing. And that is, whoever comes into the grace of God will do it by faith in Christ. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, we are all received on one basis and one basis alone. That the just shall live by faith. So I want to conclude for you two things today. One, God will remain mysterious in the inner workings of his plan for the church. And two, he's never afraid to start over with just a few people. He's never afraid. Many years ago, I did a series called The Power of a Few. He would not have us despise small beginnings, Zechariah 4.10. The Adamic experiment, or the Edenic experiment, the one in Adam, or in Eden, right? It was all washed away by the flood. That one didn't work out. He left really one man. We like to say eight. But really it was Noah that found righteousness in the eyes of God. He was willing to start over with one human family. Lot was a single soul, surgically removed out of Sodom as the wrath of God fell upon the city. Just one man came out. Came out with his wife and she didn't even make it all the way. Joshua and Caleb, a remnant of two. And so we read this from the book of Numbers. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. When I think carcass, I think the meat room. And God's referring to his people as carcasses. In other words, you're dead and decaying, and you're going to stay here because you complained against me. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. Friends, those are the people of God. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number, from 20 years old and above, in other words... 20 was kind of the uh, age of accountability. He let them go very graciously. According to our entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Japuna, and Josiah, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. You will by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. It's conditional. Gideon tried to go to war with the Midianites. It's easy to remember Gideon and Midian, right? He had 10,000 soldiers. God said it was too many. He whittled them down to 300. Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his armor bearer as the two attacked a Philistine garrison, nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. 
And they did overcome, by the way. Jesus turned the world upside down with a mere 12 followers. And he commended the church at Philadelphia for having a little strength. I'm sometimes heartened by an admission of the Apostle Peter, who wrote of Paul's epistles. In other words, this is a disclaimer if you're confused today. Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the scriptures. Friends, these are, these are passages difficult to understand, which is fine. But we recognize it's God's word and it's worth trying to understand them so long as we don't twist them to suit our own predetermined beliefs, you see. Sometimes the best conclusion we can make is the one Paul celebrates at the end of the chapter, where he writes this. He throw, I always picture him throwing up his hands after all this stuff, saying, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, even though he's just spent 11 chapters searching them. And his ways past finding out, although he's revealed so much of his ways to us. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid him? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let me give you one last verse that I couldn't fit in on the, in the notes in the original uh, in the original version of the notes. From Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10, we read God saying, I will pour out, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication when they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a, for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Rimmon in the plains of Megiddo. Father, I ask in Jesus' name <clears throat> that you make us treasure your unfolding truth to us, Lord, as it is imparted by your apostle and by your servant. Father, in Jesus' name, give us eyes that we might see and ears that we might hear. We pray in his name. Amen.